Today's guest is former Chief Content Officer and Head of Retirement Research of the American Retirement Association, one of the industry's most prolific writers and still to this day is leaned on for his sound pulse of the industry. I would like to introduce to you one of the most influential people in defined contribution and my friend, Nevin Adams. Nevin, thank you for being here. Wow. Thanks, Faith. I appreciate that. It's very nice of you. Now, you've seen patterns, I'm sure, in all of your research and time spent in this industry. What are some of those hamster wheel things that you wish could be fixed about just people's understanding of finances? Well, I think people are not very comfortable with money. They're not comfortable with handling money. They're not comfortable with things like doing a budget. Um, and so when it comes to saving for retirement, saving for something that nobody even knows really what that means. And it's like 30 years out. I mean, it's really, it's really hard for people to get their heads around that. Um, and, and so particularly when we come to them as they're just stepping off into the workplace, they've got a lot of different things they're trying to set aside money for, um, college debt, um, setting up that new apartment, buying off that car. Um, and retirement ends up being sort of a conflict with that. But I think, I think the biggest problem is there are all of these needs and wants kind of vying for attention. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for a regular person to sort of sort their way through that and, and prioritize them effectively. Um, human beings are, we're human beings. And so we, we tend to take care of the things that are closest to our hearts as opposed to our, our heads. Good point. Now, I know that you are aware of different financial education programs that have been put into place, uh, but there's a lot of studies that are showing that it's not working. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, you know, first off, you need to start with saying we're trying to achieve something called financial literacy. And first off, you need to define what is financial literacy to, to achieve that. Um, there is about half of the states in the nation now have a personal finance course requirement in order to graduate high school. And, you know, people in our industry have been saying for a long time, that's all we needed. And if we get that, then, you know, everything would be fine. And I think, I think they say that because they assume that if somebody has a personal finance class, they will apply those concepts that they will forget about the gap between let's say sophomore year of high school and graduation or later than that. And all the things that they're going to forget um, in between those two. The studies that are out there show basically that this is a skill that you have to apply in order to retain. Mm. Um, now, I don't know about you. I remembered my calculus for about two weeks after I got through the class. And right. after that, I was like, I have no earthly idea what I just did. I did <laughs> it. I got an A. But I have no idea why I did it. And, and I couldn't do it again if somebody, you know, sort of forced me at gunpoint to try and do it. But I think that's that's true with a lot of the personal finance things. So the, the good news is there are classes out there that are beginning to, to at least plant the seeds. But I think ultimately we need to realize that if people don't have an opportunity to apply these skills in the real world, they won't hang on to them. And so there's a point at which, you know, maybe sophomore year of high school is too early, even though I've heard people suggest that we would do people a, a favor by having them exposed to this as early as kindergarten. And mm -hmm. the, the more common trade-off is to say, well, instead of uh, PE or sex ed, can't we do financial education instead? Um, I don't know, maybe a more continuous curriculum would help. 
Um, but again, I think the, the studies show you need you need to find a way to actually apply the skills if it's going to going to work. But I would also say one other thing, and that is, you know, um, nobody expects me to be auto mechanic literate. Nobody True. expects me to be a uh, doctor literate. Mm -hmm. And yet all the time we are expected to make, in some cases, life or death decisions based on our limited knowledge. I mean, uh, my mother about a year ago was, was presented with an opportunity for a procedure. The doctor she had worked with and knew her general practitioner for years and years and years had one thing. The specialist who was supposed to know something about what was going on had a completely different recommendation. She's supposed to make the choice, right? It's your choice. And by the way, sign this all so the lawyers feel good. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you say, we'd love if people, you know, as financial professionals, if people could understand the decisions we're putting in front of them if they could have a, a reasoned decision. But that's why I think what's what's most important for people in financial literacy is to, yes, know enough to understand the concepts and what's being talked about, <coughs> excuse me, but to be able to bounce that off of somebody they trust who, mm -hmm. who actually knows this stuff and works on it for a living. So it goes hand in hand. It's not a standalone. Right. And and I, I hear you about the financial education, it needing to be relatable. I mean, I look at our finance industry as a whole and we're pumping out a lot of information to people and hoping something lands. But for the people receiving all of that information, it's a fire hose of insight and you really don't know which thing to concentrate on or which thing you're going to need next. So it tends to be that we have to find out the answers for the things we're dealing with right now, which is kind of a frustrating place to be. Did you talk about money at home growing up? <laughs> not, not, as, not as much as we should have. Uh, most of my great money conversations um, when I was growing up came after I was out of the house, uh -huh. um, which is kind of weird, but not all that unusual. I think like a lot of homes, money was it was like confidential. It was personal, whatever. I mean, I first began having conversations with like my mother about finances when, when I told her how much money I was making fresh out of college and she compared it unfavorably to how much money she was making after years and years and years in the teaching profession. So, oh my goodness. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's something we've, we've tried with my kids. We've tried to do better. We've tried to do different. We've tried to give them a cognizance of what we're doing. We've tried to, encourage them with things like allowances and and practicing with budgets and things like that. But um, but it's hard for a lot of people because and again, it gets back to people not being comfortable with it. It's like it's something that is private, personal, you keep to yourself. And and I don't think we're doing anybody any favors by by doing that. Um, quite the contrary. Um, so I wish we had done more. But um, every generation we try to improve a little bit. Yes. Yes, and I. It, so it sounds like you think that we should be talking about money more and being more open. I, f I think that there's a, a lot of barriers in families and individuals. I mean, talking amongst your friends about money is still an uncomfortable, typically an uncomfortable conversation. So you think we should talk about it more? Yeah, I think, I think we should. You know, it's weird, of course, because these days it's gotten to be fairly common based on what I read that uh, people are very open about their salaries at work. And that still feels weird to me. Um, you know, I understand the opportunities there. I understand, you know, kind of 
getting out into the air, the fact that disparities in pay, maybe they've been there that wouldn't have been there if people knew what everybody made. But honestly, that still feels a little weird, a little weird to me. Um, but I think it's all, I think it's all a part of that. I think it's all a part of people having a better understanding of, of what's going on. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's like, I wrote a column about a week ago about uh, a trip that I made to the dentist and I hadn't been in a long time. And as a consequence, I was really nervous about what, what my dentist was going to find. I was pretty sure it was not going to be pleasant. Um, and, and I think that's the way a lot of people deal with money. They don't want to sit down and do a budget. They don't want to sit down and figure out how much they'll need for retirement. They don't want to budget a certain amount for savings because it is something that they are, are afraid to find out the answer. I'm afraid to find out if you are saving enough for retirement or doing all the things you think that you're supposed to be doing. I did read your column. It was excellent. I loved the correlation. I'll have to share that with the audience as well. Now, you were the global editor-in-chief of several magazines, not just U.S., but also European. And I'm sure that you saw um, a regurgitation of many of the same topics over and over uh, because we're still dealing in the finance space with the same conversations. I mean, it's money. So you're talking about a lot of the same things, maybe seeing research a little bit differently or seeing studies come out slightly differently, maybe severely differently. I don't know, but it seems like you would have to have seen a lot of patterns and repetition. How did you not grow tired of that in your time in the industry? I mean, still now you're still writing about it. How did you not grow tired of saying, talking about the same things and hoping that it will land with people to finally step up? Well, well, the great thing about being able to write about it is that I can vent my frustrations and, <laughs> uh, and put them out there. So there's that. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a couple of different things. Um, first off, we want to we want to say that people are all alike and they're not. They're mm. really not. Um, people in different countries, there's been any number of attempts to try and take uh, designs, retirement plan designs in other countries and apply them to the U.S. population. Um, honestly, I don't think that kind of works. I think a lot of it is, you know, we are, to some extent, we're hardwired about our expectations with regard to things like, um, you know, how much is the government going to take care of me? And how much am I willing to pay in taxes so that the government will pay taxes uh, or that the will take pay taxes so that the government can take care of me? So mm -hmm. I think I think there really are some differences. There's even differences in this country. Um, studies have shown, for instance, that um, the concept around uh, Hispanic Americans, the idea of saving for your retirement is viewed as selfish because oh. uh, Hispanic Americans tend to have more of a familial support notion. You don't save for your retirement, you're saving for your family. And so the positioning around that kind of stuff can, can make a lot of difference. And then of course, there's a lot of distrust among certain communities of color with regard to financial institutions generally. So all of that is, is out there as a possibility. Um, it just means that you can't treat everybody with the same brush. Some, you've got to know your audience and you have to custom your message to that audience. Now, if we're having to take into account culture and um, backgrounds and their lifestyles, how do we reach people and help the world improve on their financial acumen? Do you have insights on that or your own soapbox? <laughs> well, look, um, if it was easy, we'd have solved it by now. Well, right? true. Um, so it's a challenge. I think, I think the, 
the ultimate answer is we're, we're kind of saving this um, one individual at a time, one plan at a time, one employer at a time. I think what the data has shown pretty consistently, certainly in, in America, is that what's most important is that people have access, the ability to save for retirement through a workplace retirement plan. Um, that's where they're going to get really all their financial education. It's an opportunity for them to pick up the things that they maybe didn't carry over with them from that sophomore personal finance class, but it's an opportunity to actually apply that kind of information. Now, the good news is we've built a lot of automatic features into these plans now. So for instance, you don't, um, we'll start you off without you having to fill out a form. We'll automatically invest you in a target date fund, which automatically chooses the investments for you based on a, a diversified portfolio and things like that. We'll set in motion so that we will gradually over time as your pay increases, we will increase the amount you set aside for savings. So if you're doing it yourself, it's probably your first opportunity to actually get in the markets and to, to apply those concepts. But if you're not ready for that, we're taking care of a lot of that for you. So what's the behavioral philosophy then behind that? Are we assuming that uh, we need to have it turned on for people automatically so they don't have to think about it because they won't think about it? Is that paternalistic? Well, yes, it is. Um, on the other hand, what's, what's the alternative? Um, one of the things that I've, I've for a long time, I kind of resisted these notions. And my, my big resistance was if you don't, if you don't make people learn this now, then they're going to get to the end of their life and they're not going to have a clue. And at a point in time when things like your mental faculties are not firing on, on all cylinders and things like that, you're making really complex decisions at a point in your time where you really can't correct for mistakes that you've made. And so that's a problem. On the other hand, we went 30 years without doing this for people and they honestly, most of us, you know, a significant minority weren't doing it. So there, there's no question they're better off with the do it for them alternatives in place than they would have been otherwise. Um, but I still think we've got to, got to deal with the off ramp. Um, this is where the retirement income discussion is being important because if you've done it for somebody for their entire working career and you've gotten to the point where they're at that point where they're ready to quit working and retire, now you've got some really complex decisions and there really aren't a whole lot of do it for you alternatives uh, for retirement income now there, there are some and there's a growing number but but it's still kind of a shortfall in the design now that is you know a, a great concept for it here you know later so college or fresh out of college getting into your early career and then help really helping them guide them towards retirement as soon as possible. But shouldn't we start that conversation much sooner? Could we? I mean, you talked about the financial education in high school kind of falling flat. But what if there was a way to talk to kids at a young age and slowly build up? Do you think that that could be something that could help stop this problem? Oh, I certainly think it could. Um, you know, we, I we hear your skepticism. Much. I want to hear the skepticism. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we've, we've done some of that. As I said, I think, I think again, maybe, maybe we're shooting too high. Um, it's like I said before, nobody expects me to know how to crawl underneath the hood of my car and service it anymore. I just need to know enough of the lingo so that I can appreciate the guidance that I'm getting from my mechanic. 
and and I will have had an opportunity to develop that trust in that mechanic because of the service that he or she has provided for me over time and the results that I've seen and that kind of stuff. And so I think, you know, when we talk about wanting people to be financially literate, it's like, so what do you what do you mean by that? And I would say what I would say is I just want them to understand the concepts enough. So when I tell them, okay, we're going to target date fund and it's going to put you 60% in mutual funds that are invested in stocks and 40% in mutual funds that are invested in bonds, he or she will know what the heck I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So he or she will understand stocks, bonds, diversification, and a mutual fund mm -hmm. and, and understand that there's a target date fund that kind of puts that all together. Now, that's not incredibly complex. I don't know that anybody would say, well, that makes them financially literate. But I would say at that point in time, they're able to make an educated, informed decision about finance. And I think you could start that pretty early. And I think people could learn that and hang on to that for a long time. So yes, possibly. But, I, but as I said, I, I think we probably are shooting too high for what we're calling financial literacy. I think we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we haven't really defined what we collectively mean as financial literacy and and we haven't come up with a good way to measure it. I mean there are there are tests out there, I've written about this too, there are tests out there that supposedly measure financial literacy. They're done by brilliant academics who've made a lifetime studying this stuff. Who am I to question? But all I would say is I can answer those questions and I don't think it tells me a thing. So. Mm. Fascinating. I, that really has my wheels spinning about, you know, the fact that you're right. We do, have not collectively decided on what financially literate means, what it would actually look like. That could probably mean a thousand different things to a hundred different people. So what is, what is a stone that you think we have not turned over when it comes to investigating financial literacy other than defining it? Well, I mean, honestly, that's, to me, that's the kind of the big thing. It's like, you know, what do you mean by financial literacy? And as I said, I think, you know, as somebody who's actually has, it's been a while now, but stood in front of a group of people and tried to help them understand this stuff. Um, I, I think that's kind of what you want. You want to be able to have the same level of conversation with, a financial advisor that you might have with your auto mechanic. Um, and of course, that means you got to find somebody that you trust and you've had some experience with and all this kind of stuff. So it's not like it's a layup kind of thing. But I but I think that's I think that's the heart of it. I don't think I think we have for too long been trying to teach people so they could be financial advisors. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they need to be. I don't think I don't think they need to be. And that's why I think all the education material, like you said earlier, then this fire hose that we've been throwing at people. I think a lot of that is founded on the notion that this person needs to basically be equipped to be their own financial planner. Right. They're, they're, they're not interested. <laughs> they're not <laughs> trained. They're not going to be any good at it. Uh, so let's just let's just make it simpler. Let's just cull it down to make it so that you and I can have a conversation about your options. And so that you can understand what I'm talking about with regard to your options. Like I said, if you can boil it down to the essence of that auto mechanic talk, or even God forbid that doctor specialist talk, um, you know, I, I think, I think we'll have some success then. I think, I think people will get and appreciate the counsel and advice they're getting. I think they will see it applied in practice. And more importantly, because I think a lot of times today's people get the benefit of that, but because they don't understand it, they don't mm -hmm. appreciate it. 
they don't, um, it's kind of like magic. And, you know, the problem with magic is it can go away about as quick as it can just as it can appear. And, and you don't want that. And particularly when you're in, in markets like we've been having recently, where they've been more fluid and bouncing around a lot, a lot of concern about things like the, the uh, debt deal. And what does that have to do with my, you know, with my 401k kind of thing? Um, but I, but I think that's an achievable goal. And I think it's something that we ought to strive for. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your insight and your perspective. This was very enlightening. Thank you, Faith. Appreciate being part of this. Yes, thank you.